Hi, this is Carly, Recovered Alcoholic. Welcome back to North Star Big Book. We are in episode nine. Two things I need to apologize for in advance. I have a lovely cough that might just randomly come out. And because of that, I'm going to be dr drinking and sipping tea. So I apologize for my slurping. But you got to do what you got to do. So we are in Bill's story. We are on page six. <clears throat> We just went over that scary paragraph where they talk about the remorse, horror, and hopelessness of the next morning are unforgettable and the cycle of alcoholism, and yet Bill keeps on drinking. So it says, the mind and body are marvelous mechanisms for mine endured this agony two more years. Sometimes I stole from my wife's slender purse when, I underlined, the morning terror and madness were on me. Next to that I wrote, mental obsession. And in, if you're still underlining in red with me, I underlined terror and madness were on me because that's pretty clear about what happens. It says, again, I swayed dizzily before an open window or the medicine cabinet where there was poison, cursing myself for a weakling. I underlined the next sentence. There were flights from city to country and back as my wife and I sought escape. And I underlined in red, I sought escape. <clears throat> And it says, then came the night I underlined when the physical and mental torture were so hellish, I feared I would burst through my window, sash and all. And I wrote physical allergy and mental obsession. <clears throat> so he's got his body that's physically deteriorating from his use of alcohol that he can't stop. And he's got his mind and that the words mental torture, I underlined that in red. Physical and mental torture was so hellish. I underlined I feared I would burst through my window sash and all. You know, for me, suicide was my end. That was my solution. It says, somehow I managed to drag my mattress to a lower floor, lest I suddenly leap. I underlined the next three sentences, four sentences. It says, a doctor came with a heavy sedative. Next day found me drinking both gin and sedative, and I underlined this combination soon landed me on the rocks, and I underlined in red, people feared for my sanity, so did I. So a couple of things here. On the top of seven, I wrote late stage full-blown alcoholism. Late stage full-blown alcoholism. You notice on the top of seven, it says, a doctor came with a heavy sedative. And I wrote above that, drugs hit him hard and fast. Drugs hit him hard and fast. So this is Bill W., our co-founder, who is talking about drugs on page 7 of the big book. He put drugs and alcohol together. And it says in the next sentence, this combination soon landed me on the rocks. So the combination of alcohol and drugs pushed him farther down faster, which was my experience. I wrote a couple of things here. I wrote, cannot tell the difference between truth and false. Cannot tell difference between truth and false. So Bill cannot tell what's right, what's wrong. And I also wrote on the side, lost the power of choice. Lost the power of choice. And what we're talking about here is alcoholism. This is alcoholism. People fearing for our sanity, us fearing for our sanity, Using alcohol and drugs together, it bringing us farther down quicker. This is alcoholism. It says, I could eat little or nothing when drinking and I was 40 pounds underweight. My brother-in-law, and that's Dr. Leonard Strong. That's his brother-in-law's name if you want to write it down, Dr. Leonard Strong. Is a physician and through his kindness and that of my mother, I underlined, I was placed in a nationally known hospital. 
The hospital they're talking about is called Towns, like spelled like the word town with an E-S at the end. Towns Hospital, and this was in New York City in 1933. Towns Hospital in New York City in 1933. The reason I write this is because it's our history and because I want to see the progression of the disease, the timeline, and when AA started. And I like that he says through the kindness of his brother-in-law and his mother, he was placed in a hospital for the mental and physical rehabilitation of alcoholics. And I'm sure that was not an easy decision for his family to make, but I like that he refers to it as kindness because it really is. Because when you're dealing with someone like us who has untreated alcoholism late stage, the only thing that we can do is get them help. We can't give them more money and give them more options. It says, under the so-called Belladonna treatment, my brain cleared, cleared, and that's Valium they're talking about, like a Valium-like substance. Hydrotherapy and mild exercise help much. Best of all, I met a kind doctor. I underlined the word doctor, and above it I wrote Silkworth. <clears throat> so this is where Dr. Silkworth and Bill W. meet. In Towns Hospital. And it's a nationally known hospital for mental and physical rehabilitation of alcoholics. We learned about this from Dr. Silkworth's perspective in the earlier chapter. Dr. Silkworth explained that those certainly selfish and foolish, which obviously he had been, I underlined, I have been seriously ill bodily and mentally. And I underlined in red, seriously ill bodily and mentally. So this is the first time that Bill is told that he's actually sick. He knew he was foolish. He knew he was selfish. He knew that he was out of control, but he didn't know about this idea that Dr. Silkworth gives him and gives Alcoholics Anonymous about the physical allergy and the mental obsession. I bracketed the next paragraph. And on the side I wrote, understands problem. So I wrote, understands problem. And then in parentheses I wrote, just has info. Just has info. So he understands what the problem is and he only has information. And that is not going to be sufficient in order to recover. It relieved me somewhat to learn that in alcoholics, the will is, I underlined, amazingly weakened when it comes to combating liquor. Though it often remains strong in other respects. I underlined the next two sentences. My incredible behavior in the face of, desperate desire, of a desperate desire to stop was explained. So he's talking about the mental obsession. So above behavior in the face of, I wrote mental obsession. So even though he wanted to stop, this explains his behavior. The mental obsession is explained. And it says, understanding myself now, I fared forth in high hope. And I wrote next to that, self-knowledge. So now he understands what the problem is. It's been explained to him by a doctor from a nationally known hospital for the treatment of alcoholic and drug addiction. He understands the problem. He believes he has it. Excuse me. And that is all he does is information. And now he feels hopeful because he understands it. For three or four months, the goose hung high. I went to town regularly and even made a little money. I underlined, surely this was the answer, self-knowledge. One of the people I had that was my sponsor would hammer this idea again and again and again. Self-knowledge is not my problem and self-knowledge is not my solution. This isn't for people who need it. This isn't for people who want it. It's only for people who work it. Um, and I, it, I bracketed the next paragraph and I wrote above it summer 1934 just for timeline purposes. 
So here's the summer of 1934. He was in Towns Hospital in 1933. His brother-in-law put him in there with his mom. He meets Dr. Silkworth. He understands the problem. He knows what's wrong with him. He's hopeful that he's good, okay? He's okay right now. And now he's got... Here he is. It was not... The frightful day came when I drank once more. I underline the next sentence. The curve of my declining moral and bodily health fell off like a ski jump. I wrote on the side, no mental defense. After a time, I returned to the hospital because it was the only place he knew where to go. This was the finish, the curtain. And I underlined and I circled, it seemed to me. And that's a good reminder because to me, when I got here, right before I got here, my life seemed hopeless. To me, it seemed like I tried AA, it seemed like it didn't work for me, and it seemed like nothing else would, and so I concluded in my own mind that therefore I should kill myself. To Bill, this seemed like the end, but to us, the reader who's recovered and is working in this program, we know this is actually the beginning. And that's one of the most beautiful parts about being a member of Alcoholics Anonymous and being in the fellowship of the solution is we can look at others and without judgment we can say in our own minds this is exactly what they needed you know the family might come to us and say oh my goodness they lost their job or they got kicked out of their house or they you know whatever and they're so upset and we say no this is probably a blessing because we know the less we have the more we're going to be willing it says, my weary and despairing wife was informed that, I underlined and read the rest of this sentence, it would all end with heart failure during delirium tremens or I would develop a wet brain perhaps within a year. And I wrote on the side, what alcohol does to us in the end. What alcohol does to us in the end. So you can have heart failure, delirium tremens from physical allergy of alcohol making us drink over and over and over. And you can, the worst is you can develop wet brain, which is not reversible. <clears throat> it says, she would soon have to give me over, I underline in red, to the undertaker or the asylum. The reason why I underline this in red is it's very, very clear what our options are. We are either going to die a physical, miserable, alcoholic death. We're going to be given to an asylum where we're locked up. Or we're going to end up in the morgue. And I wrote on the side, no human power could relieve his alcoholism. No human power could relieve his alcoholism. So he's got the doctor, he's got the wife, he's got everyone, and no one can help him. It says, they did not need to tell me. I underlined, I knew and almost welcomed the idea. This is a good moment to pause and ask myself, did I welcome the idea of death? Is that where alcoholism took me? For me, I... I thought about it obsessively every day because I wanted out of the pain. It says, it was a devastating blow to my pride on the top of eight. I, who had thought so well of myself and my abilities of my capacity to surmount obstacles, I underlined in red, was cornered at last. I have my sobriety date written down next to cornered at last to remind myself that's when I was cornered at last. And I wrote um, on the side, the gift of desperation. The gift of desperation. So for me, this um, this month is January that we just started, and it is my sobriety month. And so 
every single January at this time, I think about where I was before I got sober on this date. And as I was getting closer and closer to the end, I actually feel like, um, like a fog or a layer of gray heaviness of what that was like. I remember um, 19 years ago, last New Year's, I tried to not drink for New Year's because I had been in so much trouble. And I didn't drink on New Year's to prove that I could do it. And then the next day, which is today, was New Year's Day. And I could not stop. And I came out like three weeks later on January 20th, 1999 of a horrible blackout. And I was playing spades all night long, all weekend long. And there was an ice storm in Ohio University and everything was closed. And I remember thinking, I can't live like this anymore. There's something wrong with me and I need help. I think I need to be locked up. And I called um, the hospital where I was seeing my latest psychiatrist update. And I was going to admit myself because I was so scared of what I was capable of doing. And they were closed that weekend. And I remember thinking, of course, I can't even get into the hospital. And that was the beginning of my end. And, um, you know, we all need to get through what we need to get through here. But when I finally got sober on January 27th, 1999, I did it not because of the tubes that were put down my stomach and the charcoal and you know, the rights I lost as a human being and the psych consults and all of that. I did it because on the walk home after signing myself out against medical advice on January 27, 1999, in the middle of winter and snow in shorts and a flannel and tennis shoes a mile and a half away from my apartment, I went down to the waiting room to bum a smoke and it was a marble red because I needed to figure out my next plan. And on that walk home, I was going to smoke the cigarette and figure out where I was going to go next because now everyone knew I was sober because I told everybody and I just tried killing myself and that didn't work and I didn't know what I was going to do and on that walk home I was given what I've heard about in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous which is called the gift of desperation and I was desperate enough that I couldn't find one more personal I do and one more place to go. Um, I've told that story and variations of that story my entire sobriety and it was only last year or so that I heard a speaker say gift of desperation stands for God. Gift of desperation. And I thought that is so cool. Um, I believe that we're all given this gift and for whatever reason I was willing to take the gift when I was given it in that day. And I haven't stopped doing what I needed to do for the gift since then. It doesn't mean it's been awesome. But I need to always remember that it's a gift. I wrote on the top of the page, because this is where Bill is, and that makes me intensely uncomfortable, I wrote, I came so close to an alcoholic death. I came so close to an alcoholic death. You know, for me, um, my mom always says, because she's sober, that January 27, 1999 is my sobriety date, but it also could have been the date that her daughter died. And it really was going to be that. It was either going to be the date that I died or the date that I got sober. And I heard a speaker in AA who's really into the big book say that he was in the kind of trouble that it was either going to end in death or sobriety. And unfortunately, or fortunately for some of us, that's where it needs to take us. That's where I, that was my story. And I'm grateful for it. Um, it says, now I was to plunge into the dark, joining that endless procession of sots who had gone on before. So I wrote on the side, willing to surrender. 
Bill is willing to surrender because he's in pain. You notice there's never a time in the book that he's willing to surrender because his wife is in pain. We only get ready to surrender when we can't stand the pain. Now it says, I thought of my poor wife. There had been much happiness after all. What, I, what would I not give to make amends? And I wrote on the side, hopeless. It says, but that was over now. And the next two paragraphs I bracketed in there is close to step one as I could find in this book. I wrote step one next to the word now in that big space before the paragraph starts. And I wrote on the side, powerless over alcohol. And so when I talk about powerless over alcohol, again, I'm talking about I'm powerless over the physical allergy and the mental obsession. And I related to these two paragraphs more than I related to any other part of Bill's story. It says, no words can tell of, I underline in red, the loneliness and despair. I found in that bitter morass of self-pity, quicksand stretched around me in all directions. I had met my match. I had been overwhelmed. I underline in red, alcohol was my master. I wrote two things. Right after master, I wrote, turn into questions. <clears throat> so I wrote, turn into questions. So at this point, I can ask myself and I can ask the woman or man I'm working with, did you know loneliness and despair? Were you in a bitter morass of self-pity? Did you feel like quicksand was stretching around you? Do you feel like you met your match? Were you overwhelmed? Was alcohol your master? And these questions are here to remind us, to make us pause, and to make us connect. I wrote on the side, without hope, life is unmanageable. Without hope, life is unmanageable. And that's how I ended up in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous, without hope. The next paragraph says, trembling, I underlined, I stepped from the hospital a broken man. Fear sobered me for a bit, which is all it'll ever do. Then came the insidious insanity of that first drink. And next to insidious insanity, I wrote mental obsession. So Bill is still drinking because he has no other solution. If we do not provide an alcoholic another solution other than alcohol, and that cannot be don't drink and go to meetings, because don't drink and go to meetings is not a solution for the mental obsession. It's only a solution for the physical allergy and to make my schedule busy. If I don't provide hope and a solution, then they will go back to drink, which is what happened. And on Armistice Day, which was November 11th, 1934, I was off again. Everyone became resigned to the certainty that I would have to be shut up somewhere or would stumble along to a miserable end. And again, I wrote mental obsession. This is the reason why that he can't stay sober. How dark it is before the dawn. In reality, that was the beginning of my last debuff. So the darkest part is usually the end of one part and the beginning of the new part. So my walk home from Oblenis Hospital on January 27, 1999, where I was hopeless and out of plans and tired, to me that seemed like the end. But if you zoom the picture out, I can see that it was the beginning. I was soon to be catapulted into what I like to call the fourth dimension of existence. I wrote on the side, promises of steps. So these are the things that are going to happen to me once I'm working the steps. We do not actually get a relationship with a higher power until we're on steps 10 and 11. 
So we talk about it in step two, and then we do all this work and get to 10 and 11, and that's when we start to feel it. I was to know happiness, peace, and usefulness in a way of life that is incredibly more wonderful as time passes. Here's the promises that are beautiful. It does not say I was to constantly know. It says I was to know, which means I'm going to know happiness, peace, and usefulness at different times in my life as long as I'm doing this work. It doesn't mean I'm going to walk around with a permagrin and constantly feel awesome and directed and guided. That's just not my experience. Near the end of that bleak November, I sat drinking in my kitchen. With a certain satisfaction, I reflected there was enough gin concealed about the house to carry me through that night and the next day. My wife was at work. I wondered whether I dared hide a full bottle of gin near the head of the bed. I underlined I would need it before daylight. That's the physical allergy. My musing was interrupted by the telephone. The cheery voice of an old school friend asked me if he might come over. So on the top of nine, right above come over, I wrote Ebby. That's E-B-B-Y. And I wrote next to Ebby's name, two months sober. Ebby is Bill's old drinking buddy. We're going to hear a little bit of Ebby's story right here um, and what he did for Bill. Um, just a background, Ebby was 12-stepped, but it wasn't called that then. It was like six-stepped because they only had six steps in the Axford group by um, the, the Roland Hazard, who worked with Carl Young. So on the top of page nine, I have this little image down and it's a bunch of different names next to each name there's an arrow pointing to the right showing how the solution was passed on so I wrote Carl Jung he was the doctor famous doctor um, that actually was working with Roland Hazard and was trying to help him stay sober and I put an arrow next to it and I wrote Roland <coughs> he was the one who knew that we needed a psychic change but didn't know how to make it happen Next to Roland, I wrote an arrow and I wrote Ebby. That's Bill's buddy, his drinking buddy, who we're going to meet. Next to Ebby, I made an arrow and I wrote Bill. Next to Bill, I made an arrow and I wrote Bob. Next to Bob, I wrote an arrow and I wrote Bill Dodson, or Bill D. That's the man on the bed. That's alcoholic number three. And next to Bill Dodson, I made an arrow and I wrote me. Obviously, Bill Dodson never took me through the book. I, that would have been cool. But what that's about is that this is literally passed on from one alcoholic to the next, to the next, to the next. And that's my job. And so one question I get to ask myself that's a responsi responsibility I get to ask myself is, what am I passing on to the next person? So back to page nine. He was sober. And you see it's in italic writing because it's shocking to Bill. It was years since I could remember his coming to New York in that condition. I was amazed. Rumor had it that he had been committed, I underlined, for alcoholic insanity. Above that, I wrote committed to asylum. So that's what happened to alcoholics when we, when they didn't know what to do with us. Was we were committed to asylums for alcoholic insanity. I wondered how he had escaped. Of course, he could. He would have dinner, and then I could drink openly with him. I underlined, unmindful of his welfare, I thought only of recapturing the spirit of other days. That word unmindful 
is so descriptive of what I was like before I got here. I was unmindful of everyone's welfare except my own. Actually, if you came to my apartment for a party and I found out that you recently got out of rehab, I would make it my personal ambition that night to get you as drunk or high as possible because it threatened and made me uncomfortable to be around someone who was sober, especially since my parents were. It says, there was that time we had chartered an airplane to complete a jag. His coming was an oasis in this dreary desert of futility. The very thing an oasis. Drinkers are like that. The door opened and he stood there, fresh-skinned and glowing. I underlined the next two sentences. There was something about his eyes. He was inexplicably different. Above different, I wrote, changed. So the drinking buddy looks at the other drinking buddy and immediately thinks he looks different. His eyes look different. And what he's talking about there is the clarity and the sparkle in our eyes when we've gotten sober and we've changed. Remember, Ebby is two months sober. There's nobody that's saying to Ebby, remember, you can't go help anyone until you have a year or five years. This is not part of our program at all. The, the whole deal is we get the solution, we pass it on to somebody else. And Bill says, what had happened? I pushed a drink across the table. So he offers his friend who was committed that he knows for alcoholic insanity to an asylum, a drink, even though he just admitted that he looked different. It says, he refused it. Disappointed but curious. I wonder what had gotten into the fellow. I underlined he wasn't himself. And I wrote next to that, changed. Come, what's all this about, I queried. He looked straight at me, simply but smilingly. He said, I've got religion. I was aghast. So that was it. Last summer, an alcohol crack crackpot. Now I suspect there's a little cracked about religion. He had that starry-eyed look. Yes, the old boy was on fire, all right. But bless his heart, let him rant. Besides, my gin would last longer than his preaching. I wrote on the side, importance of identification. Importance of identification. Because that's what the next paragraph's going to be about. It would have not worked if Abby would have come and said, you shouldn't drink anymore. You're going to get sick and it's not going to work for you. Abby came and talked about himself, which is what we do. Above the next paragraph, I wrote in that space, Roland was one of the guys. So Carl Jung worked with Roland. Roland was one of the guys who showed up in the courtroom for Ebby. I underlined, but he did no ranting in a matter-of-fact way, which is how we're supposed to do it. He told how two men had appeared in court, persuading the judge to suspend his commitment. Above the word commitment, I wrote asylum. So these two guys came to a stranger and said, we will sponsor him, basically. They had told of, I underlined, a simple religious idea, which is step two, that belief that there's something that, that's a solution. And I underlined a practical program of action, which is R3 through 12. That was two months ago, and I underlined and put a star. The result was self-evident. It worked. And I wrote next to it, it worked, can't deny results. Can't deny results. So one of my favorite questions to ask someone who's struggling, especially someone who's relapsed or is arguing, which I try not to argue with them, is, 
Are you getting the results you want from what you're currently doing? Because I am. I'm getting the results I want. It doesn't mean I don't have life and hard times and challenges, but across the board, I'm getting the results I want. Are you? And if they say no, they're not, then we can say, look, if you want to try this, you can see if it'll work for you. What do you have to lose? It says, he had come to pass his experience along to me, and I circled the word if, the last word on page nine. It's one of our most beautiful words of our 12-step work, which is always, if you want to have this, awesome. If not, no big deal. If, on the top of 10, I cared to have it. I was shocked, but interested. I underlined the rest of the paragraph. Certainly I was interested. I had to be, for I was hopeless. I wrote on the top next to hopeless, desperate equals willing. Desperate equals willing. So the reason why I was willing to go to the woman's meeting that I didn't want to go to the day I tried killing myself, that I signed myself out against medical advice, was because I was desperate. And that meant I was willing. And so when I've got someone who's not willing to do the work, one of the questions I can ask them is maybe you're not miserable enough. Or I can just remind myself that when I'm doing a 10-step about it. We're going to read one more paragraph. It says, he talked for hours, childhood memories rose before me. I could almost hear the sound of the preacher's voice as I sat on still Sundays, way over there on the hillside. There was that proffered temperance pledge I never signed. My grandfather's good nature contempt of some church folk and their doings. His insistence that the spheres really had their music, but his denial of the preacher's right to tell him how he must listen. His fearlessness as he spoke of these things just before he died. These recollections welled up from the past. They made me swallow hard. So he's remembering his grandfather, who he obviously loved, and his grandfather struggled with faith and with religion. And then he's remembering how at the end of his grandfather's life, he was still struggling with that, and that made him uncomfortable to remember that. We're going to stop right there. Thank you so much for your time, and it is a privilege and an honor. I hope you have an awesome day. It's totally up to you. I'll see you next week.